In this part one of a special two-part episode, we celebrate the third birthday of GDPR by looking back over some of the key issues that have evolved over the past three years. What is GDPR? And more importantly, how does it impact you and your company? Join internationally known data privacy, data protection expert, Jonathan Armstrong and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist to learn more about the burgeoning world of data privacy and data protection. After listening to this episode, you'll walk away with a greater understanding of what this means for you and your organization. Life with GDPR is a production of the compliance podcast network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode. And we uh, today, and this hopefully will be the first of two parts, going to celebrate a birthday. And that birthday is for GDPR. So, Jonathan, first of all, uh, happy birthday to GDPR and welcome. Thanks very much, Tom. Good to, always good to celebrate. Well, as uh, for our celebration for our listeners, Jonathan, I thought we might uh, take up uh, what you see as uh, maybe five of the top uh, areas that have uh, interested you over the past three years. You did a, a, a quarterly compliance, uh, uh, I would call it YouTube uh, event on this, but I was wondering if we might be able to maybe uh, take a little more time and expand on some of these because I found it really interesting. Uh, and uh, so what did you see for maybe the kind of top five issues that have interested you for this momentous third birthday? Yeah, so uh, uh, thanks, Tom. I um, I mean, it's always hard to pick five trends or five themes, particularly when you're looking at such a large amount of activity. But I picked uh, militancy, enforcement, who and where you do business, security, and customers and value is my sort of five trends. So if we started on militancy, um, I think I think GDPR has certainly been used uh, in ways in which it wasn't in, it intended. You now, when uh, what is now called GDPR was introduced in January 2012, the idea was in some respects, yes, to give individuals more rights, but also to balance those rights against savings for businesses. The European Commission promised savings to businesses of around 2.3 billion, with a B, 2.3 billion euros a year for businesses. So by now, of course, businesses should have been sitting on just under 7 billion euros of savings. And none of that has happened in, in my view. I don't know of one client who's saved money through GDPR coming in. And one of the reasons for that, but not the only reason, is individuals using their GDPR rights in some respects for perfectly legitimate reasons, but in other respects, possibly not. So, for example, we're seeing many more subject access requests, and some of them are genuinely for data, but some of them are to just get even with companies. You know, people have a bad meal in a restaurant, and they make a subject access request because 
you know, they think their chicken should have been a little warmer. People have a bad stay in a hotel and make a subject access request. And so sometimes this is used as leverage or as revenge, and it's used by consumers for those purposes and also for employees. Oftentimes, an employee that's exiting an organization or exited will make a subject access request just to cause pain to the organization. You know, some of the cases we've handled are individuals who've left the business maybe two years ago, maybe under some sort of settlement, but still want to get back at their former boss and want to get him to have to go through all of his emails. And it's not just the cost of complying with subject access requests. It's also the cost that we've talked before about redaction and removing other people's uh, details. So we're certainly finding that uh, a huge increase in volume of subject access requests, uh, less so of things like right to be forgotten requests, but they're still on the increase as well. But certainly more aggression. Businesses are having to find data more quickly. And oftentimes, they don't really know where it is. Sometimes an employee or a customer might know where their data is uh, more than you do. So some of that looks embarrassing. And organizations have got to have a proper strategy to know where the data is and also to manage data requests. Oftentimes, we're brought in when the request has spiraled. So they've had one GERD complying, and then the individuals complain to a regulator, or they've um, pushed back and said, you've missed out X, Y, and Z databases. And whilst obviously we can try and uh, make the situation a bit better, I would say this, wouldn't I? I think you should always call in your lawyers at a much earlier stage and look at the strategy for handling uh, these requests, because if you get in early, you might be able to minimize the harm. I think it's similar with class actions as well. We're getting many more threatened class actions, for example, after data breaches, for alleged unfair treatment. There's some really big class actions rumbling through. Some of those are in the billions with a B of dollars alone if, uh, if they win. And that's, uh, again, GDPR-related, some around cookies, et cetera. So a lot of activity in, in litigation. You, you know, I've said it before, Tom, you know, the three greatest imports from the U.S. to the Europe are KFC, McDonald's, and the class action litigation system. And, um, and, we're, and, and we're suffering from that in privacy terms as well. So I think militancy is is definitely my my first trend. Jonathan, let me uh, stop you there because um, the militancy you've described seems to have really ramped up over the past year. Early yeah. on in GDPR, we had a what I would call a different type of militancy, and, and perhaps uh, it's not even militancy at all, but we had several... Uh, data privacy groups, particularly in France, uh, filing suit. Uh, of course, we had uh, Mr. Shrims himself, but we had uh, privacy groups testing uh, the boundaries of GDPR and also uh, trying to bring uh, corporations, some American corporations, some European corporations, uh, to task and make them 
uh, be more transparent in their uh, data uh, privacy. Uh, did, do I remember that correctly? And does that type of, of uh, intervention still exist? Yeah, you did remember it correctly. And yes, it does still exist. So we still have, uh, you know, Max Schrems and his group, NOYB, making complaints, some of those successfully. You know, the Grinder case is in part through a, a NOYB complaint. A lot of the complaints that they made as the uh, clock ticked to a minute past midnight on uh, 25th of May 2018 are still being investigated. So in France, Canil is still looking at some of that first batch of complaints uh, and some of their recent enforcement action uh, relates to those complaints. We still have, you know, Le Quadrature du Net in, uh, in France, Digital Rights Island being very active. Um, Big Brother Watch uh, won a case uh, today around surveillance. So a lot of these pressure groups still exist, but in some respects, they've been outshouted, if you like, by the color of money. And some of these class action outfits are, uh, by European standards, much more uh, aggressive. You know, the rumor is that some claimants in these class actions are being paid to lend their name to the litigation. The rumor is that the uh, law firms and promoters of these class actions are then, you know, working up the claim. They're then selling it to uh, insurers who, you know, one insurer, I think, uh, said that it had, I believe, 80 million euros ready for class action litigation. And they're then trying to run the cases, and they're spending a lot of money on advertising, a lot of money recruiting people to join their cases. Because one of the differences in most of Europe is that class actions are opt-in, not opt-out. We've a case going through our Supreme Court that might change those rules. But, but still, the class sizes are relatively small because we're opt-in, not, not opt-out. Uh, if the law does change then I think that is likely to be uh, even more problematical. And of course, you can use a subject access request as a sort of cheap form of pre-action discovery. And that's what many of uh, the people bringing this litigation are doing. They're asking for details under the uh, subject access uh, rights and then using that to show the insurers to fund subsequent litigation. Jonathan, there's another category, which I'm not sure militancy would be uh, the right phrase, but a class of lawsuits around the right to be forgotten. And early on in this podcast, you described sort of your role, or at least your thoughts on uh, what the right to be forgotten originally, where it originally came from. And, and I think you use the example of perhaps a teenager who has too much to drink or does something very teenage-like and, and regrets it later, uh, but there's a record of it in, in the form of a photographic record, and that photographic record makes its way to um, a social media platform, and that person wants to have that photographic record removed uh, at some point later in their life. Um, somehow that concept morphed to 
individuals uh, with uh, alleged criminal backgrounds or even those who are convicted of crimes seeking to have uh, information removed uh, from social media and that if a report uh, um, relied on those social media reports, that report, whoever wrote the report could possibly be sued. And I was wondering if, is, do, we, do you still see that trend as well? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't see the right to be forgotten being used by, you know, teenage girls. I do see it being used by oligarchs and high net worth individuals who'd like to, you know, forget the source of their wealth, for example, or wouldn't want people to comment on it. And we've been involved in a number of those cases where clients of ours have decided to stand up to that uh, bullying behavior. And I don't see a lot of that in the public domain, I guess because some uh, uh, outlets aren't as robust in standing up to these threats. I know the BBC, for example, has disclosed some of the right to be forgotten requests that it has received and those that it has rejected and why it's rejected them. And they don't make for good reading. You know, for example, a um, a, a serial um, sex offender who wishes to uh, erase reporting on her uh, past conduct because it's stopping her getting dates online. Um, you, you know, in some respects, there is a right to be forgotten, but there's also a right to remember. You know, there's another case involving a property developer who seemingly has a history of uh, uh, taking deposits for real estate from individuals, not completing the development, putting the company into insolvency and running off with their deposits. Why shouldn't people have the right to remember that conduct? Why should he have an absolute right to be forgotten, to start again, and to fleece other investors? So I, I, think, I think the right to be forgotten, in my view, uh, has always been challenging. You know, in about 2012, I uh, made representations to both the European Commission and to the relevant uh, um, group at the European Parliament. And and I, I don't want to sound, um, you, you know, like I had a crystal ball or... Um, or that I can predict the future. But this was very predictable. And we did sit down and we did predict it. And we did tell both the Commission and the Parliament that there were problems with this particular provision. And they didn't listen. And now they're acting surprised. And um, so, so, so these, some of these rights are problematical. And the three years of GDPR enforcement has just proved what many of us feared. Uh, let's move on to your next uh, kind of general area, Jonathan, which I think you said uh, was enforcement. I believe you have uh, some fairly stunning numbers on uh, kind of overall enforcement. Maybe we can take it from there. Yeah, um, about 795 fines to date under GDPR and about 294 million euros levied in fines. 
Now, really accurate figures are hard to come by, in part because some data protection authorities don't do sort of live reporting of cases. Oftentimes, they will report after the event. Some authorities, there is a pr process to go through. So, for example, the Data Protection Authority uh, recommends a fine to the police. And there are all sorts of quirks in the system. But, but probably more than 800 fines to date. Probably, uh, I, I'd say it'll be over uh, 300 million euros. And it's apparent, really, that some countries are doing more than others you know in the in the sort of at the bottom of the table there are countries like croatia with just two published fines iceland with three La uh, La uh, latvia ireland and portugal with four but at the higher end there are um countries like spain with just over 250 they had the vodafone case uh, today Germany with about 105, but that includes uh, at a federal level and at, at a state level because the German system's slightly different. The, the uh, most interesting in some respects is Italy, uh, 77 fines to date, but some big numbers there. So some of their fines are north of uh, 20 million euros. Spain tends to do, with some exceptions, uh, smaller fines you know, give us two plates of a paella and an apology and uh, and you're good to go. Uh, that's changed, I think, in December, January time with some more substantial fines against uh, telcos, for example. Uh, but, um, but there's definitely a real difference in enforcement across the EU or the or, or the EEA or the EEA plus the UK. The clear trend, however, is up. Uh, regulators are being much more persistent. They're better at asking the right questions, particularly in areas like ransomware, where we've seen, you know, initially maybe somewhat inane questions about the incident. Now they're much more focused, much more targeted. I think regulators generally have. Uh, got better in the last three years at, at asking the right questions and, and getting to the heart of the matter quickly. But it's important to remember that these fines aren't just for security issues. You know, some people predicted prior to GDPR coming in that it would be mostly about security breaches. I think the majority of cases have probably involved a security breach, but certainly not all of them. And in some cases, the uh, initial investigation of the security breach has led to other things. So H&M might be an example where originally the uh, Hamburg Data Protection Authority was looking into a security breach at H&M, the, the, the large retailer, but then widened its investigation to look at transparency and fairness and the way in which H&M handled HR records and whether they were excessive. And that eventually led to a fine of 35.2 million euros. So really substantial fine as that investigation extended in scope. So enforcement is, is as I say, definitely here to stay. And, uh, and we can expect much more of that. And I think we'll expect 
um, bigger cases as well. I think in year one of GDPR, there weren't so many large cases, in part because these cases take a long time to investigate. But uh, but that that uh, tail, if you like, is uh, is coming to real time now. So a lot of the investigations that we saw commenced in the early days of GDPR will become public uh, from now on. Uh, Jonathan, were there any cases that either uh, you felt uh, uh, were guiding lights in any particular areas, or were there any cases that uh, piqued your interest uh, because uh, you thought they were fun, interesting, or different? There are probably quite a lot, actually. I think in certainly this year, we've had some really uh, interesting cases that have emphasized all sorts of different bits of GDPR. So, just off the top of my head, uh, cases like Booking.com and Twitter. So, Booking.com in the last week or so in the Netherlands, the Twitter case in Ireland in December, they're fines for failure to tell a regulator in time. You'll remember that under GDPR, for most data breaches, you have to tell a regulator within 72 hours. And, uh, and, and one of the biggest issues that we have with clients is people saying, you know, I've got other priorities, or it's the weekend, or it's Thanksgiving, or I just can't move that fast. But regulators are intolerant of that. You know, they basically say, well, if you can't move that quickly, it's because your procedures aren't good enough. So, um, so running that argument risks you two fines, not, not, not zero, because you can be fined for failure to have the right measures in place to report a breach in time and failure uh, to report in time. So, so those sort of cases are interesting. Uh, there's a recent case from Poland looking at hard copy data, which is something that people often miss. Um, some of the cases that don't lead to fines are interesting. Facebook, for example, we've talked about this before. Um, Facebook didn't do a dead protection impact assessment. The Irish Data Protection Commissioner knocked on the door and asked for it. Facebook couldn't provide it. They suspended online dating, but they suspended online dating, you know, just as the gold rush of uh, lockdown started. So they lost the opportunity to participate in a market that was worth, I believe, 3.05 billion US dollars last year. And at the same time as them being out of that huge market, their competitors got stronger. You know, one of them made enough money during the pandemic to IPO at the end of it. So they're out of a market where they would have made substantial money, and all of their rivals uh, had had the opportunity to increase. And, and we're seeing increasingly some regulators concentrate on non-monetary penalties. Some like Italy, you know, if you look at Telecom Italia Mobile, they fine substantially 20 million euros-ish, but also give a company a set of tasks that they have to do, almost a little bit like a, a monitorship in a, a bribery case. And we've had a recent case in Portugal, for example, which involves a Portuguese government agency and Cloudflare, uh, where 
the uh, Portuguese authorities said, look, we don't think Cloudflare is lawful. You have to stop using it in the next 12 hours. And of course, that can have real consequences for an organization and its infosec stance. If you're using software like Cloudflare to protect you from uh, denial of service attacks, from phishing attacks, and that is switched off, then that can have other consequences for an organization as well. So there's many good cases around at the moment. Um, you know, do I have a personal favorite for amusement? Uh, I like the Alcobar case on Tobar Wars. You know, you wouldn't have thought that that a, that a war over the ability for an automobile to pull a caravan would lead to cutting-edge data protection issues, but that might be one. There's some sad cases like um, the Katie Price case over uh, sex tapes disclosing unusual sexual preferences of a cage fighter. There's um, cases linked to the Trump administration and the Russia dossiers. So, so GDPR cases have, have, you know, run the full gamut of human life, I think. Jonathan, it seems that one of the themes you've talked about really in uh, this section around enforcement is the maturity of the regulators. And early on, it seemed to me that some of the cases were fairly egregious uh, breaches of GDPR, but almost breaches of common sense. Uh, but now we see regulators, uh, and I guess the H&M case is, is the one uh, that struck me the most, where you have an aggressive regulator, you have uh, inquiries into one area uh, of a company's obligations under GDPR, and yet you have an enforcement action uh, in a different area. And I just see an evolution in not only the aggressiveness, but perhaps even the sophistication of the regulators. Would that be a fair assessment from where you sit? Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, some regulators are better resourced than others. But as a general rule, you can expect an investigation now, not just to look at one thing, but to look at your practices and procedures across the board. You know, for example, uh, if you get a declination from the UK Information Commissioner uh, into a data breach, uh, you will be told most likely in the declination letter to review your processes for subject access requests because you'll be told that the regulator's intelligence is that the uh, amount of SARs increases after a data breach. So there's a clear warning, even if you get a declination for the security breach, that you need to look holistically at your GDPR compliance going forward. Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for part one, but I hope our listeners will join us again for part two of our happy birthday to GDPR. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you will join Jonathan and I for part two of our special happy birthday episode to Life with GDPR. If you've ever wondered how to get to the CCO chair, what it takes and what you might learn, check out my series, The Compliance Life. In the month of June, I'm visiting with Gabe Hidalgo, who had one of the most interesting paths to the CCO chair. 
He talks about his journey to the chair, what he learned while sitting in the CCO chair, and how he's taken those lessons into a consulting practice at K2 Integrity. I know you will find it fascinating. Please join us again in two weeks from this podcast date for the release of Life with GDPR. Happy third anniversary to GDPR Part 2. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.